Well, I bid you greetings in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. This is the second time I've been to Georgia. I've been through it two times, and the first time I came to it was six years old. I was six years old, and we were camping. And we stopped in Georgia because Dad was tired driving, and there happened to be a pool at the campground where we were staying. So I have good memories of Georgia, even from the age of six. So I'm glad for your warm welcome here, now some 40 or so years later, to be in your midst and preach the Word of God to you. Well, as Pastor Frank had mentioned, that our scripture text is Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 40, and reading verse 9. It's only one verse of scripture, but I'm going to be referring to this as well as what we read in Proverbs chapter 20 in verse 9. But before I read it, let's bow again and let's pray for the Lord's blessing on the word that's read and preached and heard. Our Father in heaven, this is the greatest act that we could give ourselves to now, is to hear the word of God. How often in the course of a day we hear the voices of people, mere men and women and children, and oftentimes what is said may be fraught with errors, good intentions, but poorly said words. But Lord, this is your word, and it's not merely the word of men, but the word of God, which is able to do its work in those who believe. And so we pray that you'd give the blessing of the Holy Spirit to us in our minds, Help us to hear, help us to receive the word of God implanted in us by his working, that we would bear fruit for the glory of God. And all of this we ask in the name of Christ, and for his sake we pray, amen. Well, Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? The Bible has many stirring questions in it. We're faced right at the outset of the Bible with God crying to lost Adam. And what he said to him is, where are you? And after hearing Adam's response, he asks again, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat? So right from the beginning of the Bible... There are stirring questions that are set before us. But we recognize here another question that should stir us as well. Proverbs 20, verse 9, once again, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Can you say it? Can you say that? The question seems to demand an emphatic no. I cannot say this. Asked even and sincerely, all hearers, silent, blush with nothing to say. Or if asked loudly or even daringly to us, none stands with confidence. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? No one can. Who can say, this morning I got up, had something to eat, got dressed, and later in the afternoon showed up to worship God in downtown Atlanta. Well, all of us can say that. Every one of us can say, I did that. 
I can and I've done that. But who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I'm pure from my sin. Can you say that you've cleansed your heart and that you're pure from sin? Have you done it? Would you know how to do that? Do you have the wisdom to do it? Do you have the strength? Do you have the desire? Do you have the interest? We could even ask, do you have the need for that to be done? Well, these two are stirring questions. Again, as our proverb says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart from sin, I am pure. Well, in answer to that question, we'll look at four that either can or can't. And we'll look at two implications that come from this. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Well, first up, the sinner can't. The sinner can't say that. A sinner is such, and so is seen in relation to God. As much as he or she may sin against or be a sinner in relation to any other person, it's only because of what God has commanded about our relationships as people one to another. Now, we recited, once recited the ninth commandment. The sixth commandment. Who can recite that commandment? Any takers? Okay. Or another way, you shall not murder. Well, why is it that we sin against another person by murdering? It's because God has said and God has appointed how we are to treat each other. Who can tell me the Eighth Commandment? I'll give you a hint. It starts with, you shall not. Any takers? Number eight. I figure if you got to nine, I could ask about eight as well. Okay, Hannah. That was number six. You want to pass? Okay, we'll, we'll give it to you again. Try again. Okay, you shall not steal. The reason why we don't steal from other people is not because they just won't like it. It's because God defines how those relationships are to be. Well, here, a sinner is first and always someone who disobeys God. It could be in thought. It could be with words. It could be with deeds. It could be with our desires. But it is always against God as much as it is another person. You remember David in Psalm 51 that we considered earlier. David said about his sin, knowing full well that it was with Bathsheba, yet he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that's a sinner. The disobedience of sin is of two kinds. It's either the kind that breaks God's command, it violates it, or it comes short of it and fails to do whatever God commands. The one is going too far past what God commanded. The other is not coming far enough. One does what is forbidden. The other neglects what was commanded. So this is the basics of sin. The main point is that a sinner is you and me. We are sinners. Our first father, whose name was Adam, fallen into sin. He begot us all as sinners. 
And so we entered the world as sinners. And we've done sin since infancy. It's marked us. We complained when we were hungry. We later maybe threw our bottle on the floor. We didn't want our diaper changed. Maybe years later, we didn't want the outfit that mom or dad had to put on us. We were bitter when we weren't allowed this, that, or another thing. Even when the supposed, as they're sometimes called, but wrongly so, years of innocence were ended, we were already capable sinners. We were able to lie. We lusted after things. We harbored grudges. We were sore losers. We mistreated other people and not doing what we knew that we should. By the time we turned to be adults as my age or older, we managed to do sin even more deceitfully, sophisticated ways. All this is to say that as sinners, we're steeped in sin. It's familiar to us. It's natural to us. It comes naturally. In other words, it's in our very nature. We can do no other. It's who we are, and therefore, it's what we do. It's like breathing. We just have to do it if we're going to live. And the sinner just has to sin for his life. Well, therefore, the sinner can't say, I have cleansed my sin or my heart from sin. I am pure from it. Can a sinner say this? Can he really say, I am pure from my sin? Well, that man or woman or boy or girl may just as well say, I no longer am. What a contradiction that really is. A sinner is someone who does what? He sins. So he's got to keep sinning. He can't say, I've cleansed my heart from my sin. I guess it's something like jumbo shrimp or the living dead. It doesn't go together. So what Jeremiah the prophet said of sinful Israel, it pertains to each one of us. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? That can't be. Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It says Jeremiah said in chapter 2, verse 2, that you wash yourself with lye and with soap, but you're still unclean. Pure and simple, straight up, the sinner can't cleanse his heart from sin. You can't cleanse yours, I can't cleanse mine. We lack the interest, we lack the will, we lack the ability to do that for ourselves. So as the proverb says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? The answer is, is that the sinner can't. But secondly, we look at another person that can't. And it's the ritualist, or the religionist. This is somebody who, as a sinner, tends to deal with his sin by saying, okay, I will then be religious. I'll go about all different kinds and ways of religion. If he doesn't want to admit his sin, we could say he'll try to cover it up. He'll try to bury it, or keep it down like a two-loaded suitcase. Whatever kind it is, he has many religions to choose from. He could, to some people, even create his own. 
but he can't cleanse himself from sin. This is why religion and religious people, and you'll find as many religious people in hell as you will sinful people, because religion can be bad, even as it could be good. Religion could be false, even as it could be true. Religion, as such, is then neither here nor there, even though it's everywhere. It could be idolatry, but it always comes down to this. Approaching God and having God's favor on my own terms. That's the religionist. And the religionist can't cleanse himself from his sin. We might liken religion to a mannequin, a real person. Have you ever been in a store, maybe, and you've turned a corner at the end of the aisle and surprised by what you thought was a real person standing there? And you find out that, in fact, it wasn't a real person. It was what's called a mannequin. Now, we look at the mannequin there. It looks like a real person. The mannequin has many real characteristics of a real person. It could easily be confused with a real person. But the mannequin is not a real person. It lacks voice. A mannequin lacks motion. A mannequin lacks emotion. A mannequin lacks life. A mannequin just stands there. A mannequin cannot help you. Talk to the mannequin until the store is closing. It will not hear you. It will not answer you. It can only impress you with something about the show of itself to you. Now, why do I talk about the mannequin? Because that's the way it is with religion. Or for the religionist, it's often just a mannequin in all these ways. It's not real. So who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Well, like the mannequin can't talk, the religionist can't cleanse his heart. Now, the religionist will be about depriving himself of certain things sometimes as an attempt to cleanse his heart from sin. He may do things like fasting. We read about that in Joel. And you'll find religious people that fasted, and even as Jesus spoke about, but they did it all for selfish reasons. God didn't accept the fast. There are people that will give up food, will give up drink. They'll choose things like poverty over wealth. They will choose celibacy, which is not getting married, or they'll choose chastity over marriage, or some people could even go into a monastery, or they'll maybe be a monk. They'll leave common life as we know it, and they'll be always about religion, saying prayers, doing certain works, giving things up for Lent. But this is artificial repentance. But the religionist is about these things, trying to cleanse himself from his sin. He will do such things as prayers or chants or maybe go to mass daily. Maybe he'll pray the rosary. Maybe he'll say novenas or light candles or wear certain beads or even 
speak religious jargon. Or even we as Protestants could just go through the motions of attending religious services. Even people under the Old Testaments looked at God's rituals and thought, God is pleased with me offering sacrifices. God is pleased with me offering all different types of those. But they failed to see what the writer to the letter of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 9. We read about even all these things under the Old Testament that these were a symbol for another time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Why is that? They relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. We'll return to this in a moment because it speaks about Jesus and what he would do in fulfillment of all of this, but it makes it very clear that the religion of ritualism, of avoiding things, of doing religious works, does not in itself mean that you're pleasing God. There are many things themselves by being religionists. Well, if this is the case, with even, could we say, Christian religionists, then how much worse for the pagan religionists, things like dancing around fires, things like emperor worship, things like Valhalla or Nirvana, or deep-throated chants, or prayer wheels, or pilgrimages. It is even less. What then can the religionist say? Can he say, I have cleansed my heart from sin? He cannot. The religionist can only say, and you may be a religionist, the religionist can only say, I have done religious acts, I have not handled, I have not touched, I have not tasted, I have not inhaled, I have not done all sorts of things, but in the scriptural language, I have only done self-made religion and self-abasement, humbling myself with severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence, living a sinful life. So when it comes down to what he has done, he's been too busy with his own ideas of religion that he hasn't done what God commands as he gave, but he has broken them all by doing his own will instead. He's never gotten to the heart of the issue which is an issue of the heart. The religionist falls short. Now I ask, could this be you? Could it be that your pride made you miss this about yourself? What does your conscience say? What does your heart say in the matter about your own life before God? Does it agree with what God says here in His Word? So we've seen that the sinner can't cleanse himself, nor can the religionist. Now that's kind of bad news. But there's good news, and it is that Jesus can. Jesus can. That's our third point. In fact, only Jesus can cleanse your heart. Only Jesus can cleanse you from the impurities of your heart. 
Now here is where the clouds break and the sun shines through in the sermon. This is good news. This is hope for you, whether you're a sinner or whether you're a sinful religionist. There's no other category for cleansing our salvation from sin than Jesus Christ. There are no other options. There are no other possibilities. There is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's in a category all by himself. Yes, this is the nature of true religion. Christ alone. Do you want to know what true religion is? It's Jesus only. And so who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sins. We stand still. Our conscience condemns us. We say nothing. But Jesus right then and there says, I can. I can. The Bible is very clear that God alone is the one who cleanses the heart's of his people. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 23 said, and this is promising something of Jesus Christ. God says they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. There's a good summary for what we just looked at. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, their God. This is God prophesying by the prophet Ezekiel that Jesus, and only Jesus, can cleanse your heart from your sin. This was the promise of the Old Testament. And if we could press that pause button again from Hebrews chapter 9 and let it play a little further... We'd read at verse 11 that after these things of the sacrifices, the offerings, that could not cleanse the conscience and the heart, it picks up at verse 11 and says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, and how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more? The answer there is, well, much more. Fully. Completely. So here, as our passage that was read earlier in the service, is very clear. The blood of Jesus God's Son cleanses us, not from a few, not from some, not from many, but from all sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them to him. There you and I are, covered in all sorts of spiritual grime, mud, dirt, 
the filth of sin. It's as though we've been down in a pit a very long time. We've even dug a vast network tunneling through all of that sinful ways, and even at points we've convinced ourselves that we actually enjoy this. But what will cleanse you? Well, I ask, what do you use when you cleanse yourself in terms of your body? Clean, dirty hands, dirty feet. What do you use to wash your hands? Who knows the answer to that? Soap. You use soap. And there are some times that you have to use a brush to get some of that dirt that's stuck into the very edges of the fingernails and the skin. But how do you clean the soul? What would you use to have your soul cleansed? Well, what our passages are telling us is that you use blood. You use and have the blood of Jesus Christ to sprinkle and wash you away. And like taking the brush, you need to have, as we learned in our lesson earlier today, you need the Holy Spirit to wash you and apply the blood of Jesus Christ to cover and rinse your sins. You use this soap for your soul. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You need the Holy Spirit. Do you lack Jesus' blood applied to you? Do you lack the beans? Well, Jesus said that God the Father is one who doesn't give a stone when asked for bread. He doesn't give a snake when asked for something nutritious. No, he gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask. And I urge you to call on Jesus Christ if you are in your sins and you need cleansing. You call on the Lord Jesus Christ and you ask that God would rinse you and cleanse you by that blood shed at the cross by his Holy Spirit to make you clean. Call no other person. You know, in our filth and grime sometimes, who really wants to help us get clean? People don't generally want to do that. Who would want to put up with our odor? Well, Jesus is willing. And Jesus can help us. He will save you from your sins. The promise of it is all there in Peter's remark in Acts chapter 15 in terms of the Gentiles being welcomed as believers, even as many of the Jews had as well. He said, God who knows the heart bore witness to them, the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. God and only God is the cleanser of the hearts of his people. So the sinner and the religionist can't cleanse the heart and by themselves be pure from sin, but Jesus can. And friend, Jesus will if you are believing on him, God and God in Christ alone cleanses a sinner's heart through the blood of his Son applied. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved who? A wretch like me. Jesus can. 
And Jesus will if you trust him. The fourth point is that the believer can't. The believer can't. Not even a believer can cleanse himself. He can say the proverb, but he can only mean, my heart has been cleansed. Jesus has cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. You see, God never lets us get away from his grace. He always wants us to be focused on Jesus alone. You say, well, guest preacher, wasn't it true that Asaph, Psalm 73, cleansed his own heart? Wasn't he burdened about the wicked about him? He did say, as he looked at the prosperity of the wicked in sin, over against his suffering for righteousness, he did say, surely in vain I have cleansed my heart and washed my hands in innocence. Didn't Asaph answer the proverb preacher with, I can, and in fact I did? Well, that's a good question. And in response, Asaph did say these things, and yet, when you read Asaph in Psalm 73, a dozen verses later, he acknowledged himself as a beast before God. He was bitter. He was senseless. He was ignorant of things that he thought he understood, thought he had a ground to complain to God. So his alleged self-cleansing was not quite so. It was incomplete. It was well-intended. It was rightly motivated, but it was still far from what believing Asaph thought was the case. Not insincere, but it was still insufficient. For the believer, the Proverbs, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin, means my heart has been cleansed by Jesus. You could read it as a testimony of God's grace. I have cleansed myself. I am pure from sin. And when the scripture speaks of the cleansing that you make of yourself as a believer, it is one and the same as this. To come to or to come back to Jesus and his blood shed for your cleansing. That's what it was for Asaph. That's what it was for when Isaiah rebuked Israel. And all of the times when they loved their rituals and trusted in them, he said, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He was saying, look to Christ. Believe on Jesus Christ. It was that for double-minded James, or excuse me, the double-minded James commanded with the word, purify your hearts. It was telling them to repent Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the intent of the psalmist when he said in Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man cleanse his way? It's by keeping it according to your word. How is it that a young person or an older person can cleanse his way? It's only by coming to Jesus Christ. It's only by coming back to Jesus Christ, even as a believer, who has sinned. What was all this? It was the Old Testament way of saying, come to Jesus Christ. Come back to Jesus Christ if you've sinned. God will accept you. And don't even you as a believer think 
that the cleansing is from you. It's from Jesus. So come back to him. Thus Jesus set before his disciples in the upper room once again. You remember Peter, that he had resisted Jesus wanting to wash his feet. And Jesus replied that if he didn't wash Peter, he has no part with Jesus. In which case, Peter said, give me a shower, give me a bath, wash me hand, foot, and head. But Jesus' reply was this, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. What was his point? Peter was coming again to Jesus for yet another cleansing. He was already clean. He had been washed, but he needed to be cleansed again. And when the scripture speaks of the cleansing that you make of yourself, as it were, as a believer, it's one and the same of coming to Jesus, coming back to Jesus. I might liken it to say a man who says to his neighbor, I put a new roof on my house. We would say, oh, did you really do that? Did you carry those, what, 50-pound packs of shingles up the ladder, managed to drop it down right on the peak, and then you went down the ladder and up again, what, a dozen more times? Did you scrape off all the shingles? Did you prepare and nail down the new shingles? Well, no. What I mean is, I put on a new roof on my house. I had someone else do it for me. And so the proverb, as we understand it rightly, from the perspective of the gospel, is that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've put a new roof on my house. I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from sin. The sinner can't say that. The religionist can't say that. Jesus can do it for you, and not even as a believer can you claim it as your own, but you receive it, and you have it from Jesus alone. Now let me draw out two implications, two little lessons for those of you who have believed on Jesus Christ. The first one is this. Since you are clean, stay clean. Stay clean. Your sin is forgiven, but sin remains. It's what Hebrews later talks about, the easily entanglingness of sin. It sticks to us. Sin remains, but don't let it reign. Don't let it rule in your body. If you believe on Christ alone, then let sin alone. Leave it. Since you are clean, stay clean. Now, we know the annoyance, maybe, of getting a stain or dirt on our shirt. We have to change our clothing, and we do that only to get it dirty once again. This is much the way of the Christian life. We get dirty again. We sin each day in thought, word, and deed. We have to be honest about our sins, and we have to be honest about our spills, our stains, 
And when you see that about yourself, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus Christ. He promises here in what we've read to forgive you and to cleanse you from all sins. Big ones, little ones, some that put a tear in your eyes, some that make you weep bitterly. Jesus will save you and forgive you from all sin. But live life so as not to get dirty and stay in your dirt and filth. He's redeemed you from it. And so live as a new creature in Christ. Did Christ say the proverb about himself? That his heart was clean. And he was purified from sin. And did he die for you only to let you still live in sin? It's not the case. Since you are clean, stay clean. Now this may be something that you've got to prayerfully pledge before God. Each day that his Holy Spirit will help you. You struggle with sins. The gospel teaches you that the Holy Spirit is sufficient. And so therefore, since you are clean, stay clean. Secondly, and it's related, if you get dirty, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. The focus here is the word remember. If you're like me, you easily forget things. Some of you, I have to say, I've forgotten your names. Help me remember. We need to remember Jesus. We need to remember what he's done for us. We need to remember, and that's why we're called to read the scripture and have it preached to us so that we can remember Jesus is sufficient. Maybe some of you youngsters and even you oldsters as well. A great book that you should set yourself to read called The Pilgrim's Progress. And there you have Christian, the main character, and his friend Hopeful going on what seems to be an easier path. They go through the delightful meadow and they arrive at Doubting Castle. And there at Doubting Castle is the giant despair. And despair puts Christian and Hopeful in the dungeon and he imprisons them and he wonders what should I do with them. He beats them, he intimidates them, he makes them fearful. And in all of that they grow anxious about whether they will survive. Then as the story goes, Christian remembers that he's got something in his pocket. It's the key of promise. And it dawns on Christian, I have this key. Why have I stayed in this despairing place? So the story goes that he tries the key in the lock, and behold, it not only opens the lock, but the gate creaks open. Christian and hopeful escape. We have to, like them, remember that Jesus is our one key of promise. The very blood of Christ is the key that will always open up to us a wellspring that flows for forgiveness and cleansing for all of our impurities and our sins. John has told us these very things in the letter that we read. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. Since you are clean, stay clean. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney before God. And it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. We need to remember Jesus 
Christ. And that's what we come together to do today at the Lord's table. To be reminded that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And to do this in remembrance of him. So go with the assurance of what the proverb preaches to you about Jesus and faith in him. I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? Well, Jesus can. And if even as a sinner, you say that by faith trusting in him, then you can too. Can you say it? Let us pray to God. Our Father in heaven, the word that you bring to us each Lord's day is life. It's refreshment to know that as sinful people, you accept us on the ground of Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's nothing we can bring. We bring nothing in our hands. They're empty, but they're lifted up to receive grace from you in a time of need, to receive mercy, help, strength. Lord, we may indeed be here today, suffering with a conscience that knows we've fallen short. Lord, help us to remember that Jesus is a sufficient and ready Savior for us even there. And so bless your word to us, and we ask that you'd help us to worship you with a new heart and sing your praise, asking all of this in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen.